Hi, and welcome to Anatomith. Today, we're looking at a couple of stories of people catching the sun using nooses made out of hair. One story involves an overachieving Polynesian demigod, and the other is a revenge story of a boy who only wanted to explore the world. We'll also look at a few instances in the real world where hair was used to pull some really heavy weights. And then we'll talk about keratin, a very important component of hair, and how it's responsible for the incredible load that human hair can withstand. Anatomith is a podcast about stories, conjecture, and the human body. Humans have long been using stories as a way to make sense of the world around them. This podcast looks at these stories, the myths, legends, lore, and fairy tales, and tries to find an aspect of medicine that fits in with certain aspects of fiction. I'm Audrey, your host. I'm a medical student who's always been interested in such stories, and I love looking for connections, even though they sometimes don't exist. Please remember that any recommendations I might make shouldn't be taken too seriously. I'm not yet a medical professional, and what I say shouldn't be counted as medical advice. Likewise, the proposed link between myth and medicine shouldn't be counted as fact. This is a podcast that's primarily for entertainment purposes, and it's filled with speculation and conjecture. This is episode 6, Now Pull. There are times when myths and folktales don't make a secret of their attempts at being a kind of primitive science. They outright declare that this is why the ground shakes and earthquakes are a thing, or this is why this fish looks like this now. Today, we're talking about two such stories. And coincidentally, they both involve a boy who uses his sister's hair to snare the sun. The first tale stars the Polynesian demigod Maui, and it tells us that our day is long, only because he managed to slow down the sun's journey across the heavens. Sometimes, the explanation for a certain animal's appearance isn't the main plot of the story. We've seen this in episode 2, where the reason why salmons have very thin tail fins was really just a subplot in the grander, more exciting scheme of Loki's escape. We have a similar situation with our second story, which is a Native American folktale. It's about the boy who takes revenge in the sun, and why, as the consequence of this series of events, the Dormouse is now so small. So, Maui, trickster, shapeshifter, demigod of the wind and sea, Hero of Men. And if you're familiar with the animated version in Disney's Moana, well, that's not really how he's depicted in the source material. Maui was a very handsome young man, usually a teenager, and also usually with a top knot, rather than free-flowing hair. And yes, while being a trickster and causing lots of mischief to both mortals and gods alike, He never really took it as far as Loki, the other trickster that we've already talked about a bit on this podcast, 
and the consequences that Maui suffered were nowhere near as unusual, shall we say, as those that Loki did. Maui is a folk hero, and he's credited with a lot of things in Polynesian myth. Really, this demigod's CV is a mile long. He lifted the sky so that humans wouldn't have to crawl underneath it. He stole fire from Mahuia. He pulled up some islands while on a fishing trip. He gave us dogs. He liked humans so much that he attempted to secure immortality for us. And he even managed to do a bit of kite flying in his spare time. Talk about a work-life balance. But the feat that I wanted to talk about today is the one in which Maui snares the sun. Maui rubbed his hands together. He'd been doing a lot recently. He'd reunited with his mother and siblings. He'd lifted the heavens, putting it in its place and fastening it there so that it wouldn't be tempted to come back down. He'd found out where his mom spent her days. He'd even gotten his ancestor's jawbone and made his magic hook from it. But what next? That was the thing about being a demigod and cultural hero. You couldn't just retire. It was always one adventure and impressive feat after another, right up until the moment that you died. Lucky for Maui, his mother had the solution to his problem. In the form of a problem that she needed a solution for. The thing was, the day was way too short. The sun, now free to run across the heavens, did so far too quickly. And because of this, there wasn't enough time for the tapa cloths to dry out. This was a light bulb moment for Maui. That was going to be his next challenge, forcing the sun to go slower. It wouldn't be easy, and he would probably need some help and advice. But this was going to be the next big thing. Maui's first order of business was to go and visit his blind grandmother, as suggested by his mom. This grandmother lived in the house of the sun, on the slopes of Mount Haleakala, and cook bananas for the sun to eat. Just as soon as the bananas were laid down, Maui stole them. This angered his grandmother. Every time she would so much as turn her back on the fruit, they would disappear. Seriously, what gives? The blind woman raised her head and sniffed out for the culprit. And when he was found out, Maui said that, Whoa, slow down there. He was family. He was her grandson and he had come to ask for assistance in catching the sun. His grandmother motioned for him to come closer. So here's what Maui was going to do, right? He was going to take his sister's hair and make 16 ropes and nooses out of it, one for each leg of the sun. He would then have to snare each leg, and just as a backup plan, here's a magic stone axe. In the event that he needed to use a more hands-on approach in persuading the sun to move slower across the sky. And so, Maui makes his ropes, and he digs a hole to hide in, where he sits, and waits, and then waits some more. As soon as the sun creeps over the lip of the mountain, he lassos first one foot, and then the next, and then the next, and so on until all 16 of the sun's legs are caught and he can't move. Maui goes up to the sun, held in place, 
and he takes the axe given him by his grandmother. And he bangs up the sun a little, just to show that he meant business. And when the sun was begging for his life, Maui spared him, on the condition that he slow his passage across the sky. Polynesia isn't made of just one large homogenous culture. There are many different countries, and within those, many different peoples. And as such, there are many, many different versions of the story. In some groups, it's not because the tapa cloths didn't have enough time to dry, but rather that the fruits couldn't ripen for lack of sunlight, or that the sunlight during the very short day was so strong and fierce that mankind suffered both in its short presence and its long absence. In some versions, it was Maui's mother who gave him the ropes, and in some others, Maui ropes his brothers into helping him and snaring the sun. A few stories don't mention the battle axe, and some don't even mention his sister's hair at all. But of course, those wouldn't really suit this episode's purpose at all. An interestingly similar story comes from another part of the world. It's a Native American tale called The Boy Who Snared the Sun, and it's from the people who lived in the region of Lake Superior. Winter was coming. The little boy shivered, clutching the light garment tighter around him as he aimed for the flock of snowbirds that had just descended. He'd been practicing over the last few days ever since his sister had given him the bow and arrows, but he'd always missed the mark. But not today. No, today he was going to catch himself some birds. The boy let fly one arrow after another, as several birds dropped in quick succession. There, that ought to be enough for a coat. And when his sister came home, he asked her to sew the skins together into a coat. And what a marvelous coat. He strutted about, warm and happy in his new coat, and ready for adventure. It had always been just the two of them, he and his sister, and she had always fended for them both, chopping the wood, gathering food, and looking out for him, fearing that a bird would see him, small as he was, and carry him off. But it was time for him to see the world for himself. Maybe there were other humans out there. And although his sister protested, the boy set off anyway, adrenaline coursing through him. But his legs were short, and he wasn't used to walking long distances. So, seeing a small place where the sun had melted off the snow, he settled down to take a little rest. The boy was soon fast asleep, and the sun bore down on his sleeping form. The birdskin coat was singed and shrank smaller and smaller, sticking to him like a second skin. The boy flew into a rage when he woke up and saw what had happened. He saw the sun slowly sinking beyond the horizon, and the boy shook his fist at it, swearing revenge. Now, look. When you put your favorite wool pullover in the dryer and it shrinks, you don't have anyone but yourself to blame. But in this case, 
I guess the boy is pretty justified in wanting revenge. But how? His sister asked when he'd returned home and told her all about the disaster. The problem was, he didn't know either. He lay on his side, unmoving, for days, and nothing that his sister said or did could rouse him. On the tenth day, he stirred, only to turn around and lie on the other side. And after another ten days, he arose with a plan in mind. He asked his sister to find him cord with which to make a noose. First, she thought of the dried deer sinew that their father had left with them, but the boy said that it wouldn't do. It wasn't strong enough. The girl frowned, but there was nothing else. She had nothing else. And then, suddenly, inspiration seized her. But of course, she pulled out a few strands of her own hair and twisted them together. The small boy nodded. Yep, that was more like it. He took the braided hair between his lips, pulling it through, and the hair emerged as a glossy metal rod. It was now a little after midnight, time to get going. The boy caught the sun just before it rose the next day, holding onto it so that it couldn't rise, and plunging the world into temporary darkness. The animals were left in a great state by this darkness. But then the Dormouse, who at the time was the largest animal in the world, hurried to free the sun by biting through the cord. And while the Dormouse succeeded, the intense heat of the sun had burned into it so much that its size was greatly reduced into what it is now. I'm intrigued by how the small boy turned his sister's hair into some form of metal. This isn't the first time we've discussed something similar on this podcast. Again in episode 2, Logi was chained to rocks by his son's intestines, which the gods had transformed into cords. Thinking about it in terms of this episode, it could mean that, well, maybe the braid wasn't hair anymore. Maybe it had become some tough material, and therefore the story is a bust when it comes to a folktale about the strength of human hair. Or maybe it's a metaphor for how strong human hair can be. Who knows? Also, in some versions, instead of placing the braid in his mouth, the boy rubs it back and forth between his hands. Again, it is a folktale, and there are bound to be some variations. When we talk about stories in which hair supports or withstands incredibly heavy weights, I think one of the first things that comes to mind is probably definitely Rapunzel. Which is fair enough. It's very widespread and very well known. But one thing that you might have noticed with this podcast, if you've heard some of the other episodes anyway, is that whenever possible, I try not to focus too much on the stories that are already pretty well known. And to be completely honest, the Rapunzel story always horrified me a little bit. I'm not even talking about the Brother Scrim version, which admittedly is pretty dark. But 
I don't know, I guess it's just the idea of someone constantly using your hair as a climbing rope while it's still attached to your scalp. Just the thought would give me headaches. I'm also always going on about looking for correlations, not just between stories and medicine, but between the stories of different cultures. And I felt like a story about a boy snaring the sun from two different continents hits that mark pretty well. Before we explore a couple of real-life examples and talk about the tensile strength of human hair, here's a message from today's sponsors. Got another all-nighter coming up and coffee just isn't doing it anymore? When caffeine is no longer enough, go for Radithor by the Bailey Radium Laboratories. This certified radioactive water is 100% organic and cruelty-free, and contains only the highest quality unadulterated radium and mesothorium. Grab yourself a vial of today's number one energy drink now. Radithor, a cure for the living dead. My inspiration for this episode actually came from a very vague memory of watching a documentary years ago about an Inca rope bridge made of human hair. I thought that I could link that back to Inca mythology, where souls must cross a bridge of human hair to get to the afterlife. So I tried looking up this totally real-life bridge made of human hair, which I was so convinced existed, only to find out that it was, in fact, a rope bridge made of grass. Which isn't any less cool. There's only one last remaining Inca grass bridge, which spans 120 meters over the Apurimac River, and it's been constantly reconstructed over the last five centuries. Honestly, that is pretty incredible. However, not only is this a testament to how fickle human memory is, but it also does absolutely nothing for this episode. But even though my Inca hair bridge idea came to nothing, there is another recorded instance in history where ropes of human hair have been used in construction. The Higashi Hongenji Temple in Kyoto, Japan, is the main temple of that particular subsect of Shin Buddhism. The temple itself was first built in that same location in 1658, and since then has been burnt down and rebuilt a number of times, the most recent reconstruction having been finished in 1895. It's a very large temple complex, and its two main halls are supported by these massive, heavy wooden beams. The problem was that the ropes of the time weren't strong enough to hoist these beams. But here comes the devotees to the rescue. The women donated their long hair, braiding them together to make a rope strong enough to move the beams. A coil of this hairy rope can still be found in the temple today, encased in a glass frame. I mentioned earlier that having a fully grown adult tugging on the hair still attached to your scalp sounds horrifying and excruciatingly painful. To me, anyway. But... There's a less well-known circus act based along these lines. 
Hair hanging is a unique, specialized performance where acrobats are suspended from a steel cable ring that their hair is wrapped around. The ring is attached to a very closely guarded rigging, and the performers would then go on to juggle, perform acrobatic tricks, basically do your typical circus acts. Just, you know, all while hanging by their hair. There's one such performer in particular, Anastasia IV, who holds the Guinness World Record for lifting the greatest weight with her hair, a two and a half ton car. Hair hanging is a pretty old-fashioned circus act. It's believed to have originated in the early 20th century and is slowly dying out. Not only is there a certain amount of pain involved, but it can be quite dangerous, as you can probably imagine. In an unfortunate accident in May of 2014, a platform actually collapsed during a hair-hanging performance, but fortunately, none of the injuries were fatal. Of course, there's a lot more than ridiculously strong hair that goes into these performances. And it seems like such a simultaneously cool and hair-raisingly terrifying performance art. Hair is very thin. You don't need me to tell you that, but I did anyway. The average thickness differs with age and ethnicity, but generally a hair strand is between 50 and 100 microns in diameter. To put that into perspective, you'd have to line up between 10 to 20 hair strands side by side to make up one millimeter. And it's a little difficult to wrap your mind around the idea that something as thin and seemingly fragile as hair can handle taking an active role in reconstruction efforts, or alternatively pull a car that weighs over 2,000 kilograms. Or at least it was for me anyway. The tensile strength of hair has a lot to do with its structure and what it's made of. Tensile strength is the amount of load that something, in this case hair, can withstand before it breaks. And when we talk about tensile strength in hair, we veer more into this area of biomechanics. And the thing is, I'm not really that great at physics. So I'm going to try and keep this as simple and painless as possible, mostly for myself, but also hopefully for everyone else involved. So hair is composed of keratin. You might have already heard of it, whether that's because you've listened to episode 3 of this podcast or because it's a word that's thrown around all the time in hair products. Keratin is the same stuff that's in our nails, as well as animal claws, scales, feathers, hooves, and horns, whatever, you name it. Two different parts, I guess you can call them, of the hair shaft contain keratin, the outer cuticle and the cortex, which lies just inside of the cuticle. Also, the structure of the keratin in these two parts is different. The kind of keratin found in the cuticle is called beta-keratin. It has more of a pleated sheet-like structure, and this cuticular keratin is compacted into layers of scales. Beta-keratin is predominantly found in bird feathers and reptile scales, not human hair, 
And from what I understand, the theory is that the beta-keratin in our hair cuticle occurs because of environmental damage, heat damage, brushing, that sort of thing. The keratin in the cortex, on the other hand, normally has a helical or spherical structure. It kind of resembles a telephone cord, like back when we had phones with cords, and it's called alpha-keratin. And by the way, alpha-helix and beta-plated, these aren't terms that are specific to keratin. They're basically just descriptions of a particular protein structure, and they're applied to other proteins too. The alpha-keratin in the cortex of the hair isn't as hard as beta-keratin, but it is the more important contributor to the tensile strength of the hair strand. And in fact, while the outer cuticle serves to protect the cortex from environmental damage, it seems like the cortex is the one that actually does the heavy lifting. To understand why that is, we have to come back to this helical structure of alpha-keratin. So this helix actually changes when the hair is stretched. It unwinds and can potentially change into a beta sheet structure when under tension, and this allows hair to withstand a higher amount of stress. Also, this transformation from alpha helix to beta sheet is reversible to a certain extent. There are also other factors that can affect alpha keratin, and therefore the tensile strength of hair. For example, two big ones are humidity and temperature. A higher level of humidity increases hair elasticity. Now, I don't know too much about how hair hangers prepare their hair before hanging. A lot of the art seems to be very closely guarded, and I can understand why that is. In an interview, though, Anastasia IV said that she wet and braided her hair before getting down to some good old car pulling. And because of the higher humidity, wetting the hair increases the elasticity so that it doesn't break as easily. As for temperature, well, hair will begin to undergo permanent damage at 60 degrees Celsius. And at any temperature higher than this, it breaks a lot faster at a much lower stress level. Despite these limitations though, keratin has proven very useful as a biomaterial. In practice, it's extracted from wool and hair and has a wide range of applications in medicine, from wound healing to skin replacement, bone and cartilage engineering, and even nerve regeneration. It's pretty cool. So, while keratin can't explain how hair can loop around the sun and not be burnt off, it does at least explain how hair can support the weight of an adult, or even an entire automobile. Next month, we're delving into the Pied Piper of Hamelin, and we're also going to explore some theories regarding its historical correlations and significance. We'll hear that there are certain sound frequencies that adults can't hear, and why that happens. If you like the show, please subscribe to it on your preferred podcast app, and please rate the show and leave a review. It helps to get the word out about the show, and I really appreciate getting feedback. Also, tell your friends about it. You can also reach the show on social media. 
whether it's to suggest a topic, discuss which of Maui's feats is your favorite, or just say hi. Also, let me know what your opinions are on hair hanging. You can find the show on Twitter at AnatomythPod and on Instagram and Facebook at Anatomith. You can also send an email to Audrey at Anatomith.com. Links to the website and social media are in the show notes. I'm Audrey, your host, and this was Anatomith. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.